Hey, and welcome to the Six Minute Mile Podcast. I'm David Lavallee, and today we are pleased to bring you one of the most entertaining personalities in the running world, Dick Beardsley. Dick is now a fishing guide and innkeeper in Bemidji, Minnesota, which basically means he's a professional storyteller. He does not disappoint in our conversation, particularly when telling the story of his 1982 Boston Marathon, where he battled Alberto Salazar in 70 degree plus weather. Beardsley pulled a hamstring with only a half mile to go, but nonetheless finished only two seconds behind the iconic Salazar in 208.53. The finish was one of the closest in Boston Marathon history, and their story was expanded into a best-selling book called The Duel in the Sun. From there, the lives of the two men diverged sharply, with Salazar going on to considerable fame and fortune, while Beardsley caught a series of really bad breaks. He's remarkably open with us about how he was over-prescribed painkillers following a surgery and eventually wound up addicted and penniless. With his glass three-quarters full attitude toward life, Beardsley recovered and thrived, only to experience another gut punch in 2015 when his beloved son, an Iraqi war veteran, took his own life, succumbing to PTSD. Once again, Beardsley rebounded with tearful optimism now shares his life story and his son's story to large audiences of youth every year. Enjoy, and we'll see you out there. There are probably some similarities between your passion for running and passion for fishing, right? It takes a, it takes a lot of patience, a lot of hard work. Absolutely. And uh, it's funny because sometimes when, when people will call up that I've never had out before to book a trip, they'll, many times they'll go, you're not Dick Beardsley, that runner guy, are you? <laughs> Do they really? I love it. Yeah, I probably get, I suppose, six to ten trips a, a year uh, during the open water season, where people say, "Gee, can we go for a run first with you, and then go fishing?" I go, "Sure." So, <laughs> oh, that's a good bonus. That's good to know. And you guys, I am honest to gosh, I am slower than molasses in January now. But honestly, I go to bed at night and I can hardly wait to get up in the morning to go out for my run. So. I love that. Now, so do some people sign up and say, yeah, maybe I'm not that excited about fishing, but I'd love to go spend a couple hours on a boat with Dick Beardsley and hear all his stories and talk to him about the 82 oh, Duel in the Sun? It's, it's funny because I get quite a few people that happen to run and stuff and they love hearing, they love hearing the stories. And, you know, I've been, I've been guiding since I was 12 years old and I, I just turned 65 this past Sunday. And my mentor growing up was a good friend of my dad's here in Bemidji. He was a hunting and fishing guide. And I, I, I do quite a few kids that job shadow me from the local high school here that are thinking about being a fishing guide. You know, the outdoors is huge up here. Sure. And like I tell the kids when we're all done, I go, you know, yeah, you got to have decent equipment. You don't have to have the best boat and the biggest motor. And I said, you got to be, you know, knowledgeable, obviously. But I said, number one is you got to be a people person. Yeah. You got to be able to get in a boat with people that many times you, you, you've never met them before. And, you know, the fish aren't always jumping in the boat. So you got to tell a few stories. <laughs> and, and I remember as a kid going out with my dad and, and Bernie was his name. And I didn't even care if we caught any fish. Just listening to Bernie's stories was worth just being out in the boat with him, you know. I so, love it. All right. What's what's your what's your go-to corny fishing joke? I don't I really don't I really don't 
have any fishing jokes, but I, the story I love to tell, I'm kind of goofy, I guess. I always have been, but there, I used to, he's passed on now, but I used to have a, an older couple. They were in their seventies at the time that decided to get, to take up the sport of fishing. And they would hire me about five, six times a summer for a half day trip, which is, which is about four hours. And it'd always be from eight in the morning to noon and straight up noon, his name was Bob. Bob would say, all right, we're done. I go, Bob, I go, you know, I, I got a little more time before my next group. I said, you want to stay out a little longer? Nope, I'm paying for four hours and that's what we're going to stay out for. So anyhow, from the very get go, we'd be out in the boat and, and Bob, you know, wore one of them little pocket protectors. He always had it filled with pants and stuff. Crazy. Every trip, usually one or two times during the trip, he pulled out a little, this little notebook and he'd write something down. And I thought, well, maybe he's writing down, you know, like line this spot up with a cabin uh, over here. Right, right. Well, after about four years, one day I had him and his wife, Lois, out. I go, Bob, I go, I've got to ask you. I said, every trip, two or three times during the trip, you pull out that little notebook and you write something down. I said, do you mind me asking what you're writing down? He goes, no. He goes, I'm writing down Beardsleyisms. I go, <laughs> I go, I go, what the heck's a Beardsleyism? And he goes, you say the goofiest things. And he says, I don't want to forget him. So I write it down in my little notebook. So, oh, man, that, that notebook is priceless. You could sell that on Amazon I, or eBay for, for a million dollars. And unfortunately, he had, he had had diabetes. And then he passed away a, a, a few years ago. But I still keep in touch with his wife. In fact, I just chatted with her last week and stuff. And so, yeah. Oh, good for you. Well, you meet a lot of neat people. Well, speaking of being a good guy and being a good good storyteller, I'm I've always been intrigued by of all the all the cool stuff you've done, and obviously the '82 Boston race is one of the most most famous running races in the history of the world. But I, I've always been intrigued by the '81 London Marathon, first London Marathon ever, and you crossing the finish line uh, in a tie for first place. Uh, what 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 are the details? Did you guys plan that? There's a great uh, Norwegian runner, Inga Steinmansen. Did you plan that to to cross together? How did that come about? Oh, that, it's a it's a really interesting story. So yeah, I was invited over. I think I was like the only invited American as far as uh, uh, an invited runner over to the race that year. And um, so anyhow, the the race started and there was really a, a top contingent of European runners there. And there was a big group of us, about 10, 15 guys. And we're coming over the tower bridge about halfway. And there's still this big group. And I'm thinking, okay, this is there's just too many guys. So I threw in a hard surge coming off of the tower bridge. And the only person that came with me was this Norwegian guy. I didn't know who he was. And, yeah. and he didn't, didn't know who I was. So we're running through the streets and nobody's close to us. And when now, well, back then you come off the tower bridge and you took a right-hand turn. Now, 40 years ago, that was an old, worn down industrial part of London with most of the buildings were boarded up. There was virtually no spectators down there. Now it's one of the places to be in, in London. So we go take a right, go way down, kind of do a, a little horseshoe and then come back. We come back underneath the tower bridge 
and it's raining and we're we're on this old cobblestone road that's all uneven it's like a skating rink so i'm i'm hammering him but he's hammering me anytime you know i put in a surge and then try to break him and then all of a sudden he put in a surge and and get it in front of me for a little you know and it was back and forth back and forth so with about i don't know maybe three quarters of a mile to go i turned to him and i and i said so what do you think you know i kind of i go what do you think and and he said something back to me in norwegian <laughs> or broken english i didn't know what the heck he said so and i'm thinking well are we going to go in together or what so anyhow with about a quarter mile to go we're both sprinting and on a, it, it's such a neat thing because we're both sprinting i didn't look over to inga and say you know yeah. or nor did he look at me but right before the finish line i'm on the right he's on the left we're looking straight ahead and one time my arm my left arm's going down and inga's right arm is next thing i know we're, we clasped hands and we come across that finish line together. So it was kind of, it wasn't really like, we didn't say, okay, we're going to do this for sure. I, I kind of thought, well, maybe we are, but I wasn't really sure. And, uh, but the, the neatest part of that whole story is Inga and I, it was the first time either one of us had won a marathon. So we both yeah. got the victory and we've become wonderful friends since then. And the neat thing is, my grandma came over from Norway and settled here in Minnesota. Oh, that's a great tie-in. Yeah. That's very cool. And so the London Marathon has been so kind to both of us. About every fifth, five years when they have a, a big celebration, you know, marking an anniversary, they bring Inga and his family back. They bring me and my family back. And they treat us like, you know, we're the kings of of london or something they they've been just remarkable to us so it's always fun oh that's great stuff no i i tell my kids that story and you, you think about sportsmanship and and doing sports for the right reasons and and it's just that's a rare case of just total respect for your fellow competitor it's yeah. a really really iconic moment in sports i love that but, one what was really neat is the next day that picture of Enga and i coming across with our arms up was in papers around the world. And it wasn't really as so much because, oh, we won the first London Marathon, but it was exactly what you had just said. It was the sportsmanship. Here are two guys from two different countries, hammered it out, come across the finish line together, and we be, we, we, we became uh, wonderful friends ever since. So oh, I, I love that. Well, I, I, uh, so I was thinking about at the at the first ever baa half marathon so for years and years the only thing the baa did was boss marathon and then oh, i don't know maybe 15 years ago they did a half marathon and um you know similar story in miniature but i was running with, with a really nice guy and we were getting a little competitive coming down the stretch and and i was thinking about your story i said yeah it's such a nice match and like you know we're not battling it out for first place here and so i reached over and sort of coming, grabbed his hand and he looked at me like i had three heads my wife was there after she's like what you're a grown man? Why are you holding another guy's hand? And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, I, yeah, I don't think it really works as well when you're coming in tied for 40th place. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> trying to recreate this Beardsley moment, and he was a good sport about it. But he's like, wait, what, what was that all about? I'm like, oh, you don't know, you know, Dick Beardsley and Inga Simonson. <laughs> so you know anyway, what? the crazy thing was, so Inga and I literally 
cross the finish line. And Fred Lebo was over there helping um, Chris Brasher and John Disley put on this first marathon because, you know, New York City. Yeah, marathon. Yeah. I'd known Fred. And Fred comes sprinting up the, uh, the finish line chute and starts screaming in my face, Beardsley, this would never, ever happen at the New York City Marathon. I go, Fred, <laughs> never going to happen to me again either, but it just happened to happen today. And uh, no, it, and now, you know, now if you cross holding hands to win a race, like a big race like that, you're both disqualified. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, they think you're monkeying around with prize money or something or. I think so. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. There was, heck, people ask me, they go, Get, what did you, what did London pay you to come over and, and how much prize money did you win? I go, first off, they flew me over at their expense. I said, they put me up in a, a little hotel room. I said, the bed was so small, I had to sleep in the fetal position because it wasn't long enough. They gave me enough money to buy a couple of hamburgers a day. And I said, I was tickled pink. <laughs> there was there was no six-figure appearance fee or yeah, yeah, yeah. bonuses and $200,000 to win. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot in 40 years, that's for sure. I love it. And so um, since I'm sitting half mile from Heartbreak Hill, so, so fast forward to that. So that's what, a year later, I guess, just about exactly a year later. Right. right? sets up the font the famous famous duel and i'll i'll start i'd love to hear a lot of details about this but i'll what, what's the part of that story is there a part of that story that people most people don't know i think people know like hey coming down the home stretch and the motorcycle cut across and it was but is there is there a funky detail that most people don't really understand or have the wrong assumption about with that well, duel in the sun yeah there's a couple of things that um that you don't see on the video like you know people can go to youtube and get yeah. about the last 10 minutes or so of the race and but a couple of things funny things they weren't funny at the time but but happened that most people don't realize and when i tell that story i don't often talk about it but so i can't remember i think it was the first incident that happened so the the media were in a big greyhound type bus you know, out on the course. And they were, at that point, uh, coming up Heartbreak Hill, they were behind us. Well, when they got to heart, the top, there was supposed to have been policemen opening up a road so they could get through, so they could beeline it back to the finish line before we got there. Well, the crowds that day were unbelievable. And back then, they had no fencing up or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. So the gosh dang bus couldn't get off the course. Well, at about... I don't know, 23 and a half miles, 24 miles, something like that. Now, remember, it was a super sunny day, no clouds. And all of a sudden, I see this big shadow come over me. And Alberto was right behind me. And as I turn like this, this big Greyhound bus comes screaming by us, actually brushed me on my right shoulder. Wow. And as it went by, I was so frustrated. I remember taking my right fist and smacking the back of it. <laughs> and, and it came by us, it went up just a small little hill. Well, when it went up this little hill, it kind of downshifted, the engine did. And this spew of smoke and oil came right back into Alberto and I's face and stuff. And, and then, but then the, the even crazier thing that happened just a short time after that. So we're running down Commonwealth Avenue, me and Alberto, the crowds are crazy thick. All of a sudden, a guy 
runs out from the left side in a long black trench coat. He grabs my shorts. He's got a handful what? of bills in his right hand. He tries to stuff them down my shorts. And I kind of whacked him with my elbow. And he, he tried grabbing Alberto's shorts and doing the same thing. So crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's, that's not it, on the YouTube video. No, you and you don't see any of that on uh, on the video or anything like that. But those are a, a couple of the, that is incredible. All right, so I'll rewind you a little bit. So going, um, so you get to about mile seventeen. You guys are neck and neck. You'd sort of pulled away, I think, at that point. And yeah. and your your coach at the time was was the legendary Bill Squires, right? Right. And so, what was it? So when you got to seventeen um tied for the lead um what was the strategy from there so coach squires told me this he goes dicky before the race he goes dicky he always calls me dicky dicky if you're in that lead group when you get to the hills he says i want you to run up those hills as hard as you can and on the downside even harder wow. so like a soldier listening to his commander by that point it was alberto and i had broken away from Bill coming up that long grind to Commonwealth Avenue before you make the right-hand turn. And a guy named um, uh, Ed Mendoza, hmm. he was with this, he was with Alberto and I at that point, and we made that right-hand turn. He All of a sudden, he just stepped off the course, and so now it was down to Alberto and I. So I remember running up that hill, that first one as hard as I could, trying to, you know, break cells or nothing. Same with the next little hill, same with the next one. And then now I'm at the base of Heartbreak Hill. And I run up that thing literally as hard as I can. And I get to the top and I glance over my shoulder to see where Alberto is. And he's like right in my back pocket. Yeah, yeah. So you know that long kind of gradual downhill on the backside of Heartbreak. Going through Boston, oh. Boston College, yeah. yeah. So I am sprinting, literally like the 100-meter sprint, trying to break away. And I get down to the bottom of it where it kind of flattened out. And I remember I didn't have to look back to see if he was still there. I could hear him breathing. Uh. And at that point, I could no longer feel my legs. And I thought, if I have to stop to tie a shoe or something, I honestly didn't know if I could get going again. I was like an automatic pilot. And at that point, I'm thinking also is that I don't know that I can run five more miles at this pace yeah, or faster. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I was hurt, but I knew this. I knew Alberto hated running the way he was, where he was behind me. Oh. He, never, always, he never liked running behind somebody. He wanted to be in control. So I thought, as bad as I'm hurting, I, I knew Alberto had to be hurting pretty good too. And so, you know, back then we didn't have goos and gels and jelly beans. Sure. And to, to to help you but you know i knew that i thought okay i don't think i can run five more miles at this pace but i knew this i knew i could run one more mile at this pace and my back then i was one of my better feats in running back then was my 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 mentality i could i could put pain yeah. in the back of my in the back of my head and my my brain convinced my body that all i, I just I didn't have to run five more miles, just had to run one more mile. So now all of a sudden, the task at hand didn't seem quite so daunting. And so I broke that last five miles down into one mile segments. Great. Right? Great. 
Yeah. And were you, did you ever exchange words with him in those last five miles? Just a couple of times. Now, remember back then there were no, there weren't like real aid stations. You just kind of right. got water from spectators. And somewhere along the course, twice, I believe it was, after Al and I broke away, somebody from the New Balance Shoe Company, I didn't know they were going to be doing this, but jumped out of the crowd and handed me a water bottle. So hmm. I would take that water bottle. I drank it. I squirted a little bit on my head. And then I offered, I said, Al, would you like? Oh, come on. Yeah. And he took it both times. He took it, but he hardly took any. I mean, I didn't get that much out of it either, but he like took a little sip, squirt a little bit on him and then just threw it off to the side. But that was the only words that him and I ever said. Now, before that, way back about five, six miles, we were in that group and we were going along a little lake. If I, I think it was a little lake or yeah. a river. And uh, there were there was a guy and a gal out there on this beautiful afternoon canoeing. And Bill Rogers, he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, man, Dick. He goes, wouldn't it be nice to be out there right now instead of running on his <laughs> A couple of beers, enjoying the sun with a cute girl. There you go. But um, <laughs> yeah, Alberto and I, we didn't, we didn't say a word other than, Alberto, you want a drink? Until we got to the finish line. And I'll tell you, you know, Alberto, there was a couple things he did after we finished that I'll never, ever forget. One, you know, as we embraced and I and I said, gosh, Alberto, I said, great race. You know, and he goes, Dick, he goes, and he, I remember him turning to me, he goes, I've never, ever been pushed by any, I've never been pushed harder by anybody in my life. And yeah. that was a huge compliment yeah. in my yeah. life. But then the one thing, you know, one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest awards in sports and probably in running for sure is being brought up on that podium and being presented with the laurel wreath from yes. being the Boston Marathon. So by the time we got done embracing, there were some state troopers that had grabbed Al and were trying to get him over to that podium area where the governor was, the mayor, his mom and dad were there, his wife, Molly. I had a couple of JC Penny security guards <laughs> <laughs> trying to get me into the garage of the Prudential Insurance Building to talk to the media. Well, as I was, I was behind Al, Al was already up there. And as I got to the podium, I just kind of glanced up. And I, and, and at the same time, Al happened to glance down. And without one second of hesitation, he reached down and brought me up on that podium with him. And when, you know, they were raising his arm in victory, he was raising mine. And that, that was special because, I mean, that was his time to shine. I'm the victor of the Boston Marathon. Very I'm up cool. brought me up there with him. That that is really special in my mind, anyhow. Yeah, no, and he and he's a fierce competitor, right? So he's, oh, he's you know. I mean, you know, it's funny because after the race, you know, we both of us had lots of interviews, and and I'm sure he, he said some things that he probably shouldn't have, and I'm sure I said some things. You know, we were both young bucks. Sure. Gonna have up against each other again but when they brought us uh in for the 30th anniversary and runners world had um rented out the the auditorium at the boston library right there at the finish line oh sure yeah packed with people and al and i were down on the stage with uh i forget the name of the editor at the time and they had all these old clips 
And Al and I were just cracking up about some of the things that we remembered saying back then. And uh, it was, it was a great time. Ah, oh, that, that is so cool. And uh, yeah. And so what is your perspective on, even though you, you came in second by 1.6 seconds, uh, still yeah. you, you would have been an American record, right? You had the, right. the second fastest American marathon time ever on a, on a crazy tough course, obviously. Yeah. So um, it's kind of a strange dynamic, right? Where it, it was such a famous race in, in a weird way. It made you famous. Right. Uh, but you're 1.6 seconds in second. I mean, obviously a lot of positives to take away, but, but it's kind of ironic, right? Yeah. I I'll never forget this. So going into the race now, remember back then they didn't have mile splits all the time. You had checkpoints during the, the little towns that you went through, you know? So I had no idea how fast we were running. My goal going in wasn't to try to run fast. It was to win. And the fact that we ran both ran under 209 that day, um, I can guarantee you, if Alberto hadn't been there, there's no way I would have run under 209. Sure. I, I think he'd probably say the same thing if yeah. I hadn't you know, been there pushing him. But um, I remember coming across the finish line, both of us are dead on our, on our legs. And I, I remember kind of glancing up and the clock is still reading 208 something. And half of me had never been so excited and happy about anything in my life. And the other half had never been so disappointed. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I just ran a 208 marathon, but I got second. I'm thinking something's wrong with that picture. <laughs> and I remember getting back to my hotel room. Now, you got to remember, this is, you know, 39 years ago. And sitting in a, in a cold ice bath wasn't even thought about, I don't think, back then. My, my first thing was I'm sitting in the hottest bathtub I can find. Yeah, yeah. To, you know, get the aches and pains out. And so I'm laying in the hot tub and I'm thinking, what could I have done different where I finished 1.6 seconds in front of him? And in my mind, I went back to Hoppington and I literally retraced every step of every mile from the start to the finish. And when I got all done, I had a smile from ear to ear because absolutely nothing. There was, I, I could not have done anything differently. You know, maybe if that that cramp in my hamstring with a, you know, nine hundred yeah, meters, yeah, yeah. maybe maybe that would have made it. Maybe it would have made a difference, but maybe it wouldn't have. Yeah. And and not for one second have I ever thought about using the that little interruption with the motorbikes right at the end when we made that last left hand. Wow, turn. you're too much of a gentleman. I think that I think I personally I'm biased, but I think that had I think that had an impact. But you're you know, you're a nice it, guy. Well. And it, I, and I really, it might have had a difference. Who knows? I've never used it as an excuse. I know you haven't. I know. I, I remember one writer, one article I read in one of the Boston newspapers the next day. Seriously, you would have sworn I had tire tracks on my back. I mean, <laughs> over out there. But, but you know what? That's, I mean, I think why that race still sticks out after all these years. And even, even young runners that weren't even a twinkle in their mom and dad's eye back then, you you can you can watch that little piece of film on on YouTube, and I think what makes it still so people like to talk about it it was it was two young American boys hammering each other from the start to the finish. It wasn't like somebody had 
was had come from way back and caught up right at the end. I mean, we're basically locked at the elbows. And when you talk about that race, you know, you can't talk about that race about just me in it without talking about Alberto or vice versa. Right. And it's kind of joined us together in that sense. And uh, and like I've told this to people many times, I don't think there's been a second place finisher in any sports, but especially running, that has gotten more bang for his buck than I have in <laughs> <winning> the race. <laughs> Yeah, probably true. Well, and the other thing people, uh, you know, younger people today may not fully appreciate is, I think at the time, that was the most prestigious running race in the world, right? I mean, totally. was, oh, for know, sure. London was brand new. New York was still young. Right. Um, Chicago. You know, was Chicago. Yeah. But that was Boston was it, right? And that had been on your radar for a long time to run Boston and, and win Boston. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, even, even today, you know, even if you're not a runner, like my dad was not a runner. He had an eighth grade education, never had an opportunity to do sports. But my dad had heard of the Boston Marathon. Yeah. And in fact, when I graduated from high school, I'll never forget this. I walked off my high school stage, first one to get a high school diploma in my family. And I walked out to where my mom and dad were sitting. And my dad, who had an eighth grade education, was crying. And my, I never saw my dad cry. And so I handed my dad my diploma and he handed me this little envelope and he said, here, D, this is your graduation gift from your mom and I. And in, it, in his little eighth grade handwriting, it said, D, this is good for round trip airfare to the Boston Marathon. Come on. Maybe someday you'll want to run it. Love mom and dad. I know. So my dad, who was not a runner, didn't know anything about it. Yet he had heard of the Boston Marathon. And yeah. that's just a neat story. So what did you say when he handed you that? I just, I was like, yeah, maybe someday I will run a marathon. Now you gotta remember, I was a senior in high school. Yeah. I started running. I graduated, let's see, in May of 1975. I started running in the fall of 1973. I ran cross country when I was a junior in high school. So, you know. Never in my wildest dreams, at, you know, at that point did I probably think I'd even run a marathon, let alone run Boston, let alone, you know, having a chance to win it. I mean, that was probably the furthest thing from my head back then. But what, what did he see in you? So there, he saw something, right? He saw some talent, obviously, but he, but he must have seen a spark and a, and a, a passion for running in you for him to, to come up with that idea. He did. And so I didn't make my varsity cross country team when I went out and then I didn't run track that spring because, you know, it's a uh, Minnesota fish and opener and whatnot. I remember my coach coming up to me that spring after my fall cross country season, he goes, goes beards, you're coming out for the track team, aren't you? I go track team. You mean that, that dirt road, you guys run around, we had a dirt track, that dirt yeah. road you guys run around that goes around the football field. He goes, yeah, I go, no way. I'm not going out. But I, I had already set a goal for myself when the season ended. Basically, when our fall cross-country season ended, my junior year, I didn't run another step. And then, but my goal was when, when school was out for the year, so between that summer, between my junior and senior year, my goal was to run every single day. And I never mm -hmm. missed a day. I didn't run real far, real fast. But I think my, my dad saw 
that man, this kid's going out every early in the morning. He's out running every single day, come rain, wind, hail, whatever. And I, and, and I was the only boy in the family. I had two younger sisters. And I think my, I think because my dad didn't have the opportunity, he was kind of living through me a little bit, you know? Sure. And, and I re, I'll never forget when I was fortunate to win my very first grandma's marathon in Duluth in 1981. And I ran like 209 and some change. And my dad, that was the first time my mom and dad had ever seen me run a marathon. And that was the second time I saw my dad cry when I crossed. The oh, that's awesome. Yeah. But honest to gosh, if I was with my dad somewhere after that grandma's marathon in 1981, honestly, he would go to complete strangers and go, do you know who this is? It's my kid. He set the record at grandma's marathon. I go, dad, knock it off. You know, so and I, I, I can still remember when my running, I, you know, when I decided I wanted to see how good of a runner I could become. And I remember telling my dad, and my dad was furious. Mm. He thought, how are you going to, you know, make money? How are you going to, because I was training, you know, two, three times a day and yeah, I was yeah, doing yeah. odds and ends. And, um, but yet my dad would, would go on to, to um, probably become one of my biggest supporters. And I remember I, I, um, when I was training back in that high level, I talked to my dad partner every day hmm. and he called me up. He goes, so D, he always called me D. So, yeah. and he knew I run twice a day. He goes, so D, what are you, what are you doing for a workout this afternoon? I said, oh, I'm going to go down to the track and maybe do some 800 repeats or something like that. I said, why? He says, oh, I'm just curious. I said, okay. Well, this track I ran on, it was down in this little hole. And then it was kind of these, uh, kind of a hill leading up from it. And there was an old concession stand up in the one corner. And I'd be on the track all by me. Nobody would yeah, down yeah. in these loops. And I'd look up and I'd see my dad standing, almost trying to hide behind this old. He didn't want me to know he was there. But my dad, on many days, if I was doing a track workout, was up on that hill watching me. That was pretty cool. That's really cool. That's great. So he, but you know, in a, a different time, different era, right. he was probably, he probably would have been a pretty good athlete if he had the opportunity. I'm guessing, you know right? I think he would have, because I look at pictures of my dad when I was, you know, back in my you know, early mid twenties and my dad, you know, I was blessed with a running body. I have long legs. Yeah. I've always been thin. And my dad was that same way. You know, when my dad got to be an adult, he had a big old gut on him, but it wasn't, it was like a basketball. It's hard yeah, as a yeah, yeah, yeah. He had skinny little legs, skinny arms. And so I was, I was built like my dad. And I think my dad could have been, you know, if he would have had that opportunity, who yeah, knows I believe what it. Able to do. I believe it. Wow. So, um, so after Boston 82, I think you may have gone back and won grandma's again. Yes. Um, and then you, you, you didn't really, so, so what happened with your career from there? I know later on, later in the eighties, you had a um, terrible farm accident. Right. Which we'll chat about, but, but, um, so where did your career go in those next couple of years? Cause you were poised yeah. for, you know, amazing things and Olympics and. Yeah. Oh, it, it started going downhill quick after. <laughs> yeah. So I was one. I love to race. I, I probably ran 40 races a year, you know, 
and I, they would be part of my um, my training. I wouldn't wouldn't taper for most of them, but a lot of us did. Bill Rogers ran a lot of races, you know. And um, but anyhow, I I ran as I look back now, I ran way too many marathons. Like in '81, yeah. I think I ran five or six marathons, wow. two, 12, two twelve or faster, and and I remember. Gary Bjorklund, in my opinion, the greatest distance runner to ever come out of our state of Minnesota. And I remember one day, Gary was a few years older than me. And one day he goes, I saw him somewhere and he puts his arm around my shoulder. He says, he says, Beards, he says, listen, he says, I know you're, you're on a roll with these marathons, but you know, they have a way of catching up with you and you're running a lot of them. And I'm going like, okay, thank you there, BJ. And I just yeah. went in one ear and out the other. So after grandma's or excuse me after boston normally when i would run a marathon the next day the next morning i'd get up and go out and do about a 45 minute easy run okay after that about an hour and by the third day i was pretty much back <laughs> training again wow which, yeah i know it's crazy but i remember getting up the day after boston well first off i could hardly get out of bed so but i get up get my stuff on i go down from the hotel down to the road and i don't think i ran 10 yards and i never hurt so bad in my life i remember stopping turning around walking back up to my room and crawling back into bed i believe when it i'd already i'd already made a commitment to scott keenan the race director at grandma's marathon um that i was going to come back and defend from winning in 1981 sure. and uh and then after boston things got crazy I mean, all of a sudden now, the media and all these big time running people were saying, man, Beardsley just ran 208 at Boston. He's going to run grandma's faster course, easier course, world record. And I'm thinking everybody was talking about me setting a world record except Dick Beardsley. <laughs> I remember Scott Keenan even calls me up about two weeks before. He goes, Dick, I'm bringing in the most sophisticated timer in the United States. His name was Doc Black, I remember, if I remember right, from Florida. He said, Dick, he said, there's gonna be a pace vehicle in front of you in the timing clock. He said, there's gonna be three clocks up there. An overall running time, um, a pace per mile running, and then your projected winning time. Wow. And he goes, and, he goes, and I'm bringing in Dave Babaraki now, Dave was a Californian, and at the time, he was the U.S. record holder for 25K. Hmm. He goes, bringing in Babaraki, and I'm paying him some good bucks. He's going to be your rabbit, and he's he's taking you out at world record pace for the first 15 miles. So at this point, I'm thinking, what choice do I have? Right, right, right. That's not my so, idea, yeah. Yeah, and so the race in 81 was absolutely perfect conditions. It was 48 degrees at the start, 48 degrees at the finish, Perfect. cloudy eyes, no wind. Well, in 82, it was about the exact opposite. It was about 67 degrees at the start, about a 12 to 15 mile an hour headwind. So race starts, Babraki shoots out there and I jump right in behind him. So five, six miles were going along and I'm looking at the projected winning time. It's it's projecting that I'm gonna run a 206. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but I'm feeling good. Well, it, uh, the wind was really blowing, and scientists would sit right in behind Babaraki. Well, now remember, he's supposed to take me out for 15 miles. Well, at about eight miles, 
he jumps in behind me so I can break the wind for him. And a mile later, he dropped out. And then every step I took after that, I'm watching the projected finishing time. They're just keeping lower and yeah, lower. Yeah, yeah. 14 that day. But, um, and it was probably mentally the toughest race I'd ever run because there was so much expectation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, but I, again, I look back, I made a big mistake. So first off, and Scott Keenan, he says, Dick, the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life when it comes to running was letting you run grandma's marathon. He said, I, mm. after Boston, he said, I had 62 days to recover between. That's it. That was it. So then I, I get done with uh, grandma's on a Saturday and New Balance was flying me up to Anchorage to, um, to do a couple of in-store appearances for a guy that had a big running store in Anchorage and in Fairbanks. Hmm. And they go, and Dick, they, they knew how much I loved to fish. They go, you're going to do a couple of appearances and then they're going to take you fishing for a few days. So who wouldn't? And hey, I, that works. So I run grandma's on Saturday. Next morning, I'm on a flight out of Minneapolis up to Anchorage. I get in there late at night and the next morning, the uh, store owner picks me up. He goes, Dick, he goes, listen, he goes, I figured since you're coming to town tomorrow, we're going to have a 10K race in your honor here in Anchorage. And I'm thinking, well, cheaper, they don't, they don't, these people aren't coming out here to watch me jog. So I run right. like a 30 10K. After the race, he oh, by the way, Dick, you know, tomorrow we're heading up to my store in Fairbanks. And on Thursday, we're having a 10K race up there, too. So I have trouble saying no. And um, so I ran that hard. And then I started late that summer. I started having some Achilles troubles. Yeah. My left Achilles. And uh, New Balance sent me all over the honking globe trying to get it fixed. They sent me up to a little a doctor out of Australia that was practicing in a little town. I swear I was close to the North Pole. I was way up in Northern Canada. And finally, the Olympic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Bill Clancy, had to rebuild me a brand new one. Wow. And But he said, you can't run for six months. Well, this was in August of 83. Now, okay. back then, you know, it's not like today with the kids, they have like a two two and a half year window where they can qualify for the Olympic trials. Well, back then you had to, you had like a less than a year. You had to hit a, or about a uh, year. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Even though I'd run 208, I hadn't run a qualifying time in that window. That window. Yeah. Six weeks after I had major Achilles surgery. I remember I was in Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada, speaking at an event there, running event. And I went out for a, a mile run six weeks later and it hurt like heck but again back then i could put the yeah yeah, yeah. The hurt in the back and um i got back to running 120 130 miles a week and i went out the the marathon trials were in may of 84 i believe it was so in february i went out to california to i ran a marathon out there to qualify and about seven miles in i was coming around a sharp turn pushed off with my left foot and that son of a gun snapped Shoot. and I went I yeah I went down like a shot and they ended up having they did surgery on me out there in, in Los Angeles so there went there went 1984 chances yeah. I tried coming back for you know I couldn't run for about a year and a half after that 
and decided to give it a go for 88. But I, I just never could get back to that that level yeah, again. Yeah, and yeah. Trials in 88, I I retired. You know, I was only 32, which is kind of right at your prime now. But back then, it was like you're becoming an old man. And at, at 32, I retired from that high level of training and still going to run, just not at that level anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, you had your window though, right? You had, you had, I mean, what an amazing experience for that, that period of years. Oh, listen, no complaints yeah. on my part or regrets. I mean, running took me so much further than I ever imagined it ever would that, no, I have uh, no regrets. And then 89, things, things started to get tough in 89, right? We don't, we don't yeah. need to dwell on it, happen to talk as much or little as you want, but but the amazing thing, so you had you had a, a terrible farm accident, you right. had a couple of car accidents, yes. um, you know, wound up on painkillers, which as oh. we all know today, of course, we didn't know, you know, a, a tenth of what we know today about how no. addictive those things are. And right. Um, and but you're still able to even that, you know, that was a tough decade. Right. Right. But you're still able to make part of part of your living is as a motivational speaker. And so yeah. how do you find the going, having gone through that really tough, dark time and, and you could, you know, if you're a glass half empty person, you could look at the, you know, even the the peak of your running career as a negative thing. Like, Oh man, I missed the Olympics and I missed, you know, right. boy, that's unlucky my Achilles. But, but how do you, how do you process all that stuff, all those really tough times uh, and then say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out and speak in front of huge audiences and get paid lots of money to, to tell them how wonderful yeah. life is. Like, how, how do you get to that place? Yeah, so I've, I've been very blessed. I've always been one that it's never half empty. It's always half full kind <laughs> of guy. I always have been. And, you know, I my belief and faith over the years has always been things, they happen for a reason. And there were, yeah. you know, like when I had that terrible farm accident, listen, there are farm accidents that happen in Minnesota and around the country every yeah. single day. Dangerous, but, dangerous profession. Yep. But because of the runner I once was, the media just picked up on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the University of Minnesota saw this runner Beardsley guy and blah blah blah, and he's well known throughout, especially through Minnesota. And and there'd been a rash of farm accidents, so they started a farm safety task force. And for the next about a year and a half, they sent me out to 4-H clubs, FFA clubs, farm organizations. And to tell my story, because they said, they go, Dick, you know, we can send a professor out there with all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we can send you out there and can talk about and how you went through all this, but yet survived, that's going to make a lot more impact. And then, you know, I got in, you know, these other accidents after that and, and 20 some surgeries. And then, you know, the getting addicted to the pain medicine oh. was, I mean, it was, I mean, I didn't, I, I've never done any illicit drugs, didn't drink growing up or anything like that, never gotten in, in, in trouble. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm hooked on these gosh dang narcotics. And, you know, over the years, people have, have tried to make excuses for me that, oh, Dick, it wasn't your fault. It's the doctors. And, and I've never put any blame on anybody yeah. other than myself because the doctors I got prescriptions from always said, now we got to be careful with these because, you know, they're good for a short period of time when you're recovering from surgeries, things like that. Yeah, but yeah. You, know, you can't be in them a long time. Well, then 
I started doctor shopping and then I started forging my own prescriptions. Yeah. I mean, my, my world from about 94 to 96, when I finally got caught was like totally out of control. It was yeah. basically, it was like getting the drugs, taking the drugs and making sure I didn't get caught. And I mean, I was within a day maybe of taking a handful of them pills and just never waking up again. Yeah. And then it was like, I remember I was, I, I was in treatment and I was at a hospital in Minneapolis and the withdrawal, they, when they got me off the Percocet and the Demerol, they put me on this drug called methadone. It's what they put heroin addicts on. Yeah. yeah right. And it's nasty stuff because the, those other narcotics, they kind of go in and out of your system quick. These mm. stay in your system a lot longer. When I went through the withdrawals in the hospital, it was unbelievable. And one morning, I never missed a meeting with my group, you know, in, in recovery in the hospital. And one morning, I mean, it was, a, it was a struggle just getting my legs out of the bed and putting on a clean pair of pants and a shirt. And one morning, I was so sick from the withdrawals, I couldn't walk. I was, and I, I was, I crawled, I was, craw I crawled out of my room. I was crawling down the hallway to try to get to my group meeting when I blacked out. And I, I remember waking up, I don't know how long I laid there, but I, I was laying in my own vomit. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember looking up and saying, God, please, God, either just take me right now yeah. or please help get me better. And I hadn't slept in a week. And that night I slept a little bit and the next day a little bit more and a little bit more after that. And after I'd been there for about 20 days or so, I started feeling what it was like to be me without those drugs again. And again, I look at it like I would never want to go through that. But, you know, the, the good Lord gave me this gift to be a, a storyteller. And you can't believe how many recovery places I've gone throughout the country sharing my story and giving people hope. Because let me tell you, when, when you're especially in the early part of recovery, you're still craving the drugs or the alcohol, whatever it might be. You're, you know, you're having, you know, jitters, whatever yeah, it might be. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you think, oh, this is, this is not good. I, I, I want to be back like I was before. But then if you tell them that, you know, you, you will get over that and you'll be able to look back and say, man, my life is a lot better without it. And so I've been fortunate to be able to go out and, and speak. And, and like I tell people or tell myself, if I'm speaking to a group and one person's life has yeah. changed for the better, then mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Well, feel, feel free to uh, co-op a version of this story for your own. But I have a cousin who's been in recovery for probably 15 years now. And uh, similar to you, he's done a lot of great work and he will, you know, mostly unsung stuff and will go, he'll talk to anyone if, if someone's yeah. having a problem or going to re And so a couple of years ago, the, the local rehab facility up in New Hampshire gave him an award for all the work he'd done. And he had, you know, he had a complicated relationship with his dad uh, over the years, but a lot of it, you know, the ups and downs, sure. the addiction, whatnot. Anyway. So my cousin gets up there on stage, takes the microphone and, um, and he looks over at his dad who's sitting in the front row and he said, dad, congratulations. You are now the father of an award-winning alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole place dies, cracks up and, and oh. uh, 
but no, I, you know, I see it through him, but the, you know, the, the positive that he pulls from that stuff, right. From, from, you know, like you said, just helping one person, but yeah, no, I mean, that's, how does that feel to you? I mean, it's one you've helped people all your life and you've helped guide them in fishing and coaching yeah. kids, but, but how, how does that feel when you, when you make an impact on someone like that? Well, it, it, it's like, I, uh, again, I look at it as like, that's why the good Lord put me into that position. Yeah, I, he yeah, wanted yeah. to be able to go out and share my story with others to save others. And, you know, I've been fortunate that on February 12th is just a month and a half ago. I celebrated my 24th anniversary. Ah, congratulations. From the, from the drugs. And, and it, you know, like I tell people, it hasn't always been easy. You know, I've had yeah. two knee replacements since then, three back surgeries, but, and I, and, I had to be on some narcotics for a short period of time, but this time, oh. yeah, this time, but you know, there was a plan. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, part yeah. Of the, my first knee replacement, I remember they wanted me to, you know, I'm after surgery, I'm in, in the hospital and you're hooked up to a pain pump and I'm withering in pain after the anesthetic wore off. And, and uh, the nurse comes in, she goes, Richard, she goes, you need to push that pain pump. I go, no, no, I'm not good. And we'd already, been very upfront with the yeah, doctor yeah, yeah yeah sure and she comes in a little bit later she goes richard listen you're not going to be able to go through your recovery as far as yeah. you know right right on bending leg. Uh-uh, i'm not taking it and i was finally the doctor comes in he goes dick we've talked we talked this about you we're not gonna you're not gonna get addicted again from this we're, we're monitoring it but you've got to take some of this medicine or you are not going to be able to go through the rehab I said, I'm not taking a doc. And he picked that gosh dang thing up and he pushed the button. Oh. Like this. Now, and then within five minutes, it's like, oh my gosh, my, my knee feels so much better. Can I get up there walking around? So we've always had a plan in place now. And my wife, Jill, like when I've had to have knee, knee replacements and, you know, they send you home with a little bit of, of medication. And I have, so if I would need a refill, only Jill can call the doctor. If I call the doctor, boom, the, the warning flags go off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. only, hey, she can, good. only she can go pick it up at the pharmacy. Only she can distribute it to me. I have no idea where she hides it. And, and I'll be honest with you, I don't want to know. And people say to me, well, what do you mean? You're, you, can't give, you can't take the medicine on your own. You've got 20 some years of sobriety from the narcotics. And I said, I, said, I, I probably could, but I said, yeah. I can't. 100% guaranteed that I wouldn't take an extra one or two or three or who knows how many. And that's, that's a scary, scary thing to think about that. Oh, wow. But you know, I tell you, you know, when I, when I recovered from that Boston marathon in 1982, you know, after a couple months, I kind of got back to where I was feeling pretty good again and whatnot. It's like, well, I know one thing, I'll never have to go through anything more difficult in my life. I mean, I really believed it, but I was young, you know, and that's, at that point, I didn't think I'd ever have to go through anything more difficult. And well, then after all those accidents and the surgeries and once those kind of came to an end and I got, you know, healthier from that, I thought, well, I sure wouldn't want to go through all those accidents again, but at least one thing good out of it is I'm never going to have to go through anything more difficult. Once again, I was wrong. And then, you know, after I had about maybe three or four years of sobriety from the narcotics, I remember one day thinking, well, I would never, ever wish an addiction on my worst enemy. Yeah. And I 
never want to put not only myself, but my family through right. what I put them through with it. But the one good thing that has come out of this is that I know for a fact, unequivocally, I will never, ever go through something any more difficult than this again. Yeah. And I totally believed it. And then I was wrong again. Yeah. You know, I lost my son, Andy, uh, five years ago to suicide. And um, he was an Iraqi uh, gunner on Black Hawk helicopters over in the Iraqi war. And he suffered from PTSD when he got home and and uh, five years ago he, he took his life and um i was devastated i mean I can't imagine it makes all those other things that i've gone through really seem like just a little pinprick i mean honestly i mean yeah. um i i miss him every i mean i talk to him every day and and um i mean he was my little buddy you know he's my he was 31 but he was always my little buddy you know yeah. and uh but the, the one thing that leaves me in peace and, and, and brings me joy and hope is that knowing that, um, that all of his demons are gone and that someday I'm going to be able to give him a big hug. Again. Yeah, that'll that, happen. That, that is, um, makes me smile. That'll happen. Yeah. Now, and as you know, they, nobody ever really leaves us, right? You know, they're, they're part of us right? every single day and, you know, oh, and, yeah. you know. Yeah, you, yeah. A quick story about Andy, and I know I'm yapping my. No, 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 no. This is amazing. So that first year after he died was, if, if, I think if you talk to anybody that lost a child, that first year is the most difficult. Yeah. You know, because right after he died in October, his favorite holiday was Thanksgiving. Yeah. And then, and then there was Christmas. Then his birthday was February third. Well, on Father's Day, I never ever book a guide trip. Because when my dad was alive, I would take my dad fishing. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And then when Andy got old enough, it was me, Andy, and Grandpa. Well, then when Grandpa died, it was just me and Andy. Well, that first mm. <clears throat> that first Father's Day, um, I got up that morning and I told my wife, Jill, I said, uh, Jill was Andy's stepmom. I go, um, me and Andy are, are going fishing. Oh, man. And so I hooked up the boat and and I told her I said and I'm fishing with an orange jig whether I catch anything or not because when Andy was a, a youngster I had him out walleye fishing one day and he was just banging him on an orange jig and after that that it didn't matter what they were biting on he was fishing with an orange jig so anyhow I hooked up my boat I get onto a little lake just north of town up in the woods I pull up onto that first spot I put a orange jig on I with a fathead minnow, I flip it out there, and I started catching walleyes one after another like they were in a barrel. And honest to goodness, I could feel Andy in the boat with me. I mean, it was it was amazing. So even now, every every Father's Day, me and Andy go fishing. I I one hundred percent believe that. Uh, you 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 could never convince me otherwise. That is, yeah. So, it's, no, that's uh, those are powerful, powerful spirits at work there, right? They are. Those, but, and those. So now, what has happened is, you know, a lot of folks, and I don't blame them. When bad things happen, a lot of people don't want to talk about them. And yeah. and for me, I can't imagine not. I can't imagine keeping all all those things locked up inside of me. 
And now to be able to go out and share Andy's story, I, just a couple of weeks ago, you know, a lot of my in-person speaking for the last year basically went down to zero. Yeah. But a week, a week and a half ago, or it was a week ago today, I was in a little town called Park Rapids, Minnesota, and they finally let their kids coming back to school. Then I'm right. all speaking in the auditorium. And um, so I got, I, I spoke in person and um, afterwards she goes, Dick, and, and, and I talked about Andy at the end and she goes, Dick, you couldn't have, that story about Andy, you couldn't have timed it any better. Just last week we had to have two kids get him in to counseling because they were talking about taking their life. Oh man. And, and I, had, I had two young girls, you know, in high school come up to me after um, after the talk and they go and they're crying and they go, man, you know, we were just thinking life wasn't worth living anymore. But after hearing, you know, what you've gone through, what your son Andy went through, they go, we realize now it is. And so you just never know what, what words you say, how they're, you know, how they're going to fix somebody. And, and maybe there were some other kids that didn't want to come up and say anything, but were maybe, thinking you know maybe life is a little bit better than i really thought and like i tell the kids you know there's nothing in this world or anybody for that matter there's nothing in this world that is worth taking your life over even though you think it is and know that you know no matter how bad today is tomorrow that sun's going to come up again and it's a brand new day and um yeah woof the sorry <laughs> no no look what i mean that who, who knows who who you're impacting right i mean it, it's that's why you, you gotta you gotta live your life in a positive yep. way every single day and and it's Absolutely. you know it, it could be the it could be the clerk at the gas station right that you you, right. you know is having a horrible week and exactly. fights at home and you you know you're the one cheerful face all day and who knows what tiny little things make differences in lives it, right you know and I think about that if I'm at a store somewhere and maybe the clerk is a little cranky or crabby. And I always, I give them the benefit of the doubt. So I'm thinking, who knows might have what just happened to them this morning or something Absolutely. that going through. And, and, you know, we've all been there, you know, and we've all go through tough times and you just, you know, sometimes you, you get a little cranky once in a while. Yeah. No, no, no. Hey, there's, yeah. What's wrong with giving people the benefit of the doubt, right? What's what's wrong with being a little positive and uplifting? And my, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I'd be willing to bet you're, you share this trait uh, with my dad who passed away a couple of years ago. My, my dad is the only person I know. You're probably the only other person who, who talks to strangers in elevators. You know, you get in an oh. elevator, it's awkward. People are like, oh, what do I say? You're stick, but you're, you're in this tiny little box with, with another human being in the same building. You're like, why wouldn't you say, Hey, how's your day going? What's you? Yeah, <laughs> so, no, uh, yeah. I'd be willing to bet Dick Beardsley talks to strangers in elevators. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> you know what? That's what's so fun. I, I've got guy clients I've had for 30, 40 years. They come back every year and they get to be like family, but, but you get, um, I get a lot of new people too. And it's amazing. When when you get out there on that boat and you're 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 seeing the bald eagles flying over, you're hearing the loons calling and catching a few fish, you start telling a few stories, and even people that are kind of at first a little laid back, subdued, next thing you know they start talking, and it's amazing how people open up out in that boat, yeah. and and I love 
obviously I love telling the stories, but I love hearing their stories. And it's amazing. I was out with a grandma, a grandpa and their grandson last summer. And before we went out in the water, the grandma says, now my grandson is really just a quiet kid. He doesn't like to say much, doesn't look in the eye. So she just gave me the heads up. Honest to gosh, by halfway through that trip, that little boy was telling stories and talking. And, and I look over the grandma, she's just like, like, like I this, know. you know? So, um, ah, I love that. You uh, do you ever get any any, um, any of your clients ever want to uh, fly cast? You know, I, I I do. I over the years, I used to have a guy that came up from the the cities. Well, we call it when you live outstate Minnesota. Sure, you don't call it Minneapolis St. Paul. You don't call it the twins. <laughs> call it the cities. Got so it. I had an old guy that would come up every year from the cities, and I never fished. And he wanted to catch fish with a fly rod. And I'd always have him up in the very front of the boat. And he came up every year. And it was it was fun watching him. Yeah. And then he passed away. And now I got a, a, another client that comes up once or twice a summer from, from the cities. And uh, and again, I'm in the back of the boat. He's up on the bow. And this guy is good. And the last summer I had him out. And it's windy. And he wanted to fish for bass. And he's got this fly rod. He makes these his own little poppers i'm oh, thinking this cool. this is going to be tough you know he's got this fly rod and wind blowing 20 some miles an hour and he's laying this little popper i mean 50 feet away next a quarter inch to this lily pad and I, i'm just back there going this is unbelievable he says dip now let me show you something when it's real windy like this when you do this back casting it can it's really a lot tougher but he says he does this kind of casting where it's he does it underhand and the, the line goes up and down. Oh, like a roll cast almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. And even doing that in that wind, he was laying that popper right next to these lily pads. So I now the crazy thing is my uh, my grandpa on my on my mom's side, he was a trout fishing guide in Montana. Oh but unfortunately he passed away before I uh I was around, but um he was you know, I heard stories from my grandma about, you know, he was like king of the fly rods out in Montana and stuff. So I, I fished with a fly rod probably a half dozen times in my life. And my problem is I start whipping that thing. And next thing I know, I got line. Yeah, rest. Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason that my, my 17 year old son is really crazy into it. So we may, Good we, for him. What, once the, once the world opens up, we've, I've been threatening to take him up. My, uh, my college roommate lives in Michigan and has got a uh, place way up North in Michigan. So I've been threatening yeah. to do a little Midwest road trip with him. So if, if we, if we pull this off, once, you know, the COVID craziness is done, right. we, we will, uh, we'll knock on your door for sure. Yeah. He would, he yeah. would get a huge kick out of heading out in the boat with you. Yeah. We'd, we'd have a good time. That's for sure. I'm 100% certain that. All right. You've been super generous with your time. We're going to hit you with a couple quick questions here. We've, okay. We've done with some of our other guests, which have been kind of fun. So we'll uh, uh, we'll hit you with just a couple quick ones. So um, favorite movie of all time? Oh, without a doubt, it's a wonderful life. Oh, I should have predicted that was going to be yours. That is perfect. Every Christmas it comes out, and uh, yeah, it um, that I mean, nothing comes even close. Uh, I'm a sucker. I'll turn it on for five minutes. Like I'll just watch one scene, and then you know, two hours later, I watch the whole thing again. I um, morning runner, evening runner these days. Always been a morning runner. I, yeah. I you know, 
I'm I'm up at between three fifteen and three thirty every morning. Wow. And yeah, and part of it is, you know, when I was milking cows, I just liked being out there early in the morning. And and since with my fishing too, I, I usually pick people up to get going on the water between six thirty and seven o'clock. And and I love getting my run in first. So yeah, definitely a morning person. Uh, headphones, no headphones. I have never worn a pair of headphones running in my life other than one time on a treadmill but i can't imagine putting them on my wife jill she's she will not go for a run outside without them on to me see when i run so early in the morning especially in the summertime it starts getting light here when i get up at 3 30 you look to the east it's starting to already get light so i'm out the door by about four and what is so neat is is i get to hear the world come alive as we get a little further into the into the dawn, you know, you start hearing the birds chirping, you hear the uh, bald eagle screeching, you hear the loons calling and flying over, and I'm and I'm thinking, just look, just what people are missing, and uh, and to have those earbuds in, I, I wouldn't hear any of that. Now saying all that, I have no problem with people wearing them. Like if if that's what yeah. it takes to get my wife to run, sure. more power Great. to her. But yep. you'll never see me wearing them. I'm with you. I'm with you. No, that's the time to clear our head. To me, it's the time to clear my head, not fill it with more stuff. So absolutely. Yeah, me too. I'm with you. Yeah. All right. If you could have uh, dinner with one person, living or deceased, who would it be? Dinner with one person. We'll say we'll say a famous person. You'd probably, you know, a lot of people yeah. would say, oh, you know, my 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 dad or something, but right. Um it might be um maybe you know what? I've, I've always liked him. Jimmy Stewart. You know, Jimmy's That's one of the a great him. one. No, an amazing guy. Life. He was a World yeah. War II combat pilot. And, oh, yeah. And just yeah. a down to earth, nice guy. Yeah. And I love yeah. him. <laughs> that is really cool. All right. Last one. Who uh, best, best mentor in your life? Bernie Bachman. Now, who's Bernie? So, Bernie is my, was my, one of my dad's good, good friends here in Bemidji that was a hunting and fishing guy. Oh, that's the guy you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bernie, um, Bernie, I got to tell you. So when, when Bernie was younger, and it, Bernie's been, he'd be over 100 years old now. He's died in the 90s. But when Bernie was a, a young man, he got in a bad car accident, and he walked with a limp. And so like during when I was growing up, like at Christmas vacation, I just would live at his house with his family. I'd go out on his trap line with him, and I'd get back home you know, because school would be starting, got to go back home to mom and dad. And for about a three or four days, I'd walk with a limp because Bernie walked with a limp. And I'm not making this up. When I was about nine or 10 years old, and I was dead serious, I asked my mom and dad if they could change my name to Bernie. I mean, he just, <laughs> he just left such an impression on me. And in fact, down in my man cave, there's a I got a picture of Bernie down there holding up a stringer of walleyes and stuff. He was just, he was, I learned so much from, I learned a lot from my dad about the outdoors too, but, but I learned so much about guiding and, and, and the outdoors from Bernie. So that's hands down. It's kind of like asking me what movie, my favorite, yeah, same yeah. thing Instant. right there. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. You're a good man. The world, the world needs more Dick Beardsley's. Well, David, it's been a, it's been a joy talking and sorry, you know, you ask me what time it is and I tell you how to build a clock. So I get <laughs> off. <laughs>